0: on Palm Sunday. I was struck this morning, I was at Starbucks preparing uh, and just enjoying a cup of coffee. I love to be out in the community on Sunday mornings and see people's faces and just be praying over our city. And I was struck with this thought that, you know, all around the world there are congregations who meet in church buildings and cathedrals, schools, coffee shops, parks, living rooms, right? We get that every, every Sunday. And some of those meetings are very public, uh, very open, very uh, loud even. And some of those are in secret and quiet because of persecutions. Great diversity in the body of Christ. And, and, and here's what kind of started percolating in my heart was most Sundays, unless you're a part of a, a, a liturgical background where there's kind of, you follow a liturgical calendar, and so each Sunday there's a particular theme I'm more of an evangelical and even in a Western expression. We, you know, different churches will preach different messages. I know that in the churches in Glendora this morning, um, well, in most mornings, I'm going to break my own illustration here in a second, most Sundays at different churches, there are going to be different themes, different topics, different passages that are shared as the Holy Spirit would uh, move on the hearts of leaders and pastors to speak. But as I was singing about this morning, I realized, you know, there's a few times a year where the body of Christ globally turns their attention and their focus in one direction. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, of course Christmas, are all these moments in time as the body of Christ where we turn our eyes to Jesus as a united body, as the big C church to look to him. And and I just felt stirred in my heart this morning as we do that, as we turn our hearts to the Lord, as we talk about Palm Sunday, I wanted to take a minute to pray for the church globally. To pray as, as churches are, are, are worshiping the Lord, as they're welcoming people, as they're looking towards this Easter week, this holy week, and engaging their communities. Can we lift the church before the Lord this morning? Let's do that. Father God, thank you for your bride. Thank you for the body of Christ, the, your church, your people, who are called by your name. And God, as people gather in everything from cathedrals to living rooms to whatever manner of gathering place, Father God, your word says, and when two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in their midst. And so, Lord, as worship is offered this morning, as teaching is given, Lord, as as encouragement and prayer uh, are offered, Father God, and as uh, fellowship is engaged in, Lord, that you would build your kingdom through your people. God, that you would do a mighty work globally in the midst of your church. We pray specifically this morning for those believers who are persecuted, who have to meet in secret, Lord, for fear of their lives. God, would you cover them? Would you protect them? But would you also continue to give them a boldness in their faith? And, Lord, that we would share in that boldness, Lord, in a place where we get to share freely, that we would do so. Lord, that we would share your light and your love with a world who so desperately needs you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What well, is Palm Sunday? And this morning, if you're taking notes, if you want to title the message this morning, uh, I'm speaking this morning on want versus need. Want versus need. I think it'd be safe to say that most of us in the room understand the difference between want and need. In fact, I, w- I would say that it's something that even from a very young age we come to terms with the first time broccoli is put in front of us at the dinner table, right? Or maybe Brussels, because I know, you know, when I was a kid, like Brussels sprouts were the worst thing in the world, and now I actually really like them. Any, anyone else, right? Anyone just, you still, you're like, your disdain for Brussels sprouts remains to this day. You're like, no, thank you. Um, I love broccoli. Our family, we love vegetables, but when you're introduced to ice cream, right, and then you realize broccoli and ice cream are not the same thing. There's a great movie that came out, uh, Parental Guidance, so the little girls, you know, her mom's told her her whole life that yogurt is the same of ice cream, uh, is the same as ice cream until she tastes ice cream and then she has this meltdown and she's just screaming, it's not the same, you lied. <laughs> right? Broccoli, just as a kid, it's just that yuck factor. I don't want broccoli. I want ice cream. But you need vegetables. In fact, you can live without ice cream. And now some of you are like, you would argue that point with me, but just you can live without ice cream. But there are vitamins and minerals and nutrition contained in vegetables that you cannot live without. And so while you might want Ice cream, what you really need is vegetables. So we get it, right? We're tracking. Want versus need. See, here's the thing, though. It doesn't stop with our culinary experience as children, though. It continues into the rest of our lives, and maybe you still don't like uh, broccoli, and that's okay. But it also turns into things like this. I want to play video games, but I need to do my homework. I want to sleep in but I need to go to work or school. I want to binge watch that show on Netflix, but I should probably, or I need to go to the gym. I want to buy that toy, and when I say toy, I'm not talking about, uh, oh, toys are us, isn't that sad? That's kind of, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, but I'm not talking about toys are us. Uh, who, who in the room knows that there's some toys at Best Buy? Right, or Costco, or an Amazon, right? I want to, yeah, some of you are like, your arm's coming out of the socket. I want to buy that toy, but I really need to save, or maybe even just pay my bills. So the want versus need is a tension that we walk through uh, throughout our lives. And if you felt this tension, you're absolutely not alone. In fact, you might have felt it this morning, right? Isn't it amazing that your pillow and your mattress and your comforter feel so much more comfortable on a Sunday morning than any other day of the week? You don't have to agree with me, right? But it's hard to get out of bed sometimes on a Sunday morning. And that thought passes our minds like, I want to sleep in this morning. Do I need to go to church? And of course, as your pastor, the answer is, yes, you need to go to church, it's a tension we don't only just share with the people in this room. It's a tension we share with a group of people who lived 2,000 years ago. This tension between what I want and what I need. Let's take a look at Luke 19, 28 through 34. It's a longer portion of Scripture, but I want to read it in its entirety so we get a, a full picture of what's happening uh, here in Jerusalem. So starting in verse 28, the words will be up on the screen, you can follow along. It says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which has never, no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord Needs it? Those who were sent ahead, uh, sent ahead, sent ahead, went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner, its owners asked them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they replied, "The Lord needs it." By the way, can we just pause there? Have you ever thought about how just that, that circumstance? In fact, some of the other gospels were re- re- recounted even a little bit more different, but. Right, Some, You have this colt that you own, and someone just walks up, starts untying it. Dude, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. Now, don't go try this in your, right? You're like, hey, that's a sweet Mustang, right? <laughs> Open the door. What are you doing? Well, the Lord, no, the Lord doesn't need that Mustang. All right. Just an interesting, uh, interesting scene right there. They brought it to Jesus, so of course the owners agreed that, okay, he needs it. I guess he needs it. and he replied, I, I tell you if, you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, Even you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment, Against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the right time, the time of God's coming to you. We call this event the triumphal entry. This moment that Jesus comes to Jerusalem where he's come many times before. Scripture records that Jesus went to Jerusalem frequently. He would go into the temple to worship the Lord. He would go to the temple to teach. He would spend time there with his disciples. And he was well known, especially to the Pharisees, because in their minds he created a lot of trouble. Because his teaching so often contradicted what they were speaking And not only that, Jesus' ministry was accompanied by miracles. In fact, uh, and we'll take a look at a picture here in a few minutes of the the route that he took. But as he comes into Jerusalem, uh, he he would have come up by past the sheep gate, which is right where the pool of Bethesda is, where he heals the man who had been lame from birth. And so the people were familiar with this man, Jesus, and his miracles. In fact, it was just a few days before this that he had raised Lazarus, from the dead and so the city is just kind of a buzz about Jesus and the work that he's doing oh my goodness this man was dead for four days and Jesus called him out of the grave and and so as scripture records they were pressing in because they wanted to see this Jesus this worker of miracles and maybe even that he would touch my life and there would be a miracle or at the very least I'll get to see a miracle unfold right in front of me I mean Let's, let's just agree that, that wouldn't, wouldn't that be awesome, right? To see a sign and wonder just played out right in front of us. And so these people press in and they call it the triumphal entry. Now, here's the thing is we've called it the triumphal entry in hindsight. However, for those who were there, it was anything but. Because what they thought they were worshiping and what they were doing was actually misplaced. And over the next few days, things would change drastically. See, it started out as very promising. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid their cloaks and these palm branches down on the road, and they worshiped him. Why? Because they had an expectation of their hearts of who Jesus was and what he would do for them. And so they were excited But many of those who started out the week saying, Hosanna, ended the week, shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Why is it that they went from singing his praises to calling for his death in the span of just a few days? I suggest this morning it's because they knew what they wanted, but they didn't know what they needed. They knew what they wanted, but they didn't know what they needed. And what they needed was right in front of them, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him, as Jesus even recounts at the end of that passage. And we'll take a closer look in a minute. Even the disciples struggled with this tension. Matthew chapter 16, 21 and 22 says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Even his disciples had, in the midst of three years of time spent with Jesus, had arrived at a conclusion in their minds of who Jesus was and how he would interact with them and in their lives. And here Jesus just sharing plainly with them, saying, this is what has to happen. And Peter says, no way. That's not what I want. I don't want that to happen. Jesus, I don't want you to die. Right up into the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the stand that Peter takes. See, but... Isn't it wonderful that Jesus knew what Peter needed so much more than what Peter thought he wanted? Amen? Luke 17, through 25 says this, Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running, after, uh, running off after them for the son of man in his day will be like lightning which flashes and lights up the fr- lights up the sky from one end to the other but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation see they wanted the flashes of lightning they wanted the conquering here the conquering king who would ride into Jerusalem in victory and, and in splendor and here Jesus is saying these things are going to happen There will be a day and that day is still coming where Jesus will come and he will light up the sky and everyone on the face of the earth will know that Jesus has returned. But before that day could come, this first day had to happen where Jesus suffered and was rejected by this generation. So what did they want? What were they looking for? What were they desiring from Jesus? They wanted a conquering king. They wanted someone who would come in and overthrow the Romans. We've been talking these last few weeks about the armor of God and the picture that, Jesus, that Paul rather paints of the Roman soldiers who were so common throughout the world at that time, including here in Jerusalem. These were a conquered people, they were not free. And one of the tactics of the Romans is that they left just enough freedom of culture and worship that, that the people thought they were free, that they were okay, but the, the reality is they were conquered. They were subjugated to Caesar. And so for those who recognized that they wanted their freedom back, they wanted their home, they wanted their nation. They wanted someone who would come and defeat the Roman army and expel them from the promised land, from Israel. They wanted their nation restored. They also wanted peace. They wanted an end to hostilities and the fighting that existed in their nation. They wanted to live without fear. Thirdly, they wanted comfort and prosperity. They wanted someone who would come and provide for them the things they wanted in their lives that would just make them feel better and have a better life. They wanted a king who would usher in a prosperous future and make life just a bit easier because life was hard. Life was just hard. This is what they were looking for. And here this man, Jesus, who spoke unlike anyone else had ever spoken, who taught as one who had authority, even though he didn't come from a, 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 an educated background. He came from a simple background, the, the, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And even that statement in Scripture, what good can come out of Nazareth? Yet here he is, this man, crisscrossing the nation of Israel, speaking with authority, teaching Everywhere he went, there were crowds that were drawn. I was blown away by even thinking about the, the crowds on the hillside when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Which, when we add up those numbers with women and children, was probably in the range of 20,000, not 5,000. And he attracted that crowd without Facebook, or a website, or a PR campaign, right? He didn't, he didn't need invitation cards. He spoke with authority and people flocked to see him and hear what he had to say. He had a reputation. And so it had been built up over these years to this point now that he arrives in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and I'd like to take a few minutes to unpack some of the content in Luke 19 because we read the story as he comes into Jerusalem, he's riding a donkey, there's palm branches and cloaks, right? And we, we get this picture, maybe you've seen the children, children's books or a reenactment or a movie that has depicted this scene, but there's some things that are hidden in the midst of the text here that I'd like to point out this morning. So it tells us that he had come from Bethany and Bethpage where... Lazarus is the the location where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's the place where Mary and Martha had their home. And it was just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is an important location uh, in in the Bible and in Scripture. In fact, I have a picture here this morning of the Mount of Olives. This is from uh, the Temple Mount from Jerusalem looking over to the Mount of Olives. And you can kind of see... Coming down the side of the, the hill there, there's a road, in fact, there's a wall behind, that's a cemetery, and an olive, well, cemetery up on the right, and then there's an olive growth, by the way, that's Garden of Gethsemane, right there. And there's a road that comes meandering down, it's an ancient road, and it's the road that Jesus rode this this donkey, this colt down, starting at the top of the Mount of Olives and coming down into what is called the Kidron Valley, which... If, if you've read, read your Bible and you've spent time in the Word, you've heard about the Kidron Valley, and he would come down uh, this, this hill. This is the Mount of Olives. It's a place where you get an incredible view of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, this is the view standing at where that church is. If you were looking back this way, this is what you would see when you get that next picture. This is the view looking back at the city of Jerusalem. And, of course, that is the ancient wall of the temple well, rather not just the temple, it's the, it's the structure that creates the plateau where the temple sat. The gold dome right there is the dome of the rock. It is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, the temple in those days would have stood just to the right. And I know it's a little hard to see, but if you look just to the right of where the mosque is, you can see there's a, a, in the wall there's a structure that sticks up a little bit. That is the east gate, the eastern gate. And that that gate would have lined up with the front of the temple, uh, Herod's temple in the time of Jesus. This is an important site for Jews and Christians alike. This mount uh, where the temple was built is called Mount Moriah. You recognize that from Abraham. It's the mount where God speaks to Abraham and he says, go and sacrifice your son. And he sends him to Mount Moriah. And of course, Abraham gets to Mount Moriah and he's ready to kill his son and sacrifice him in obedience to the voice of the Lord. And then God stops him, interrupts him, and he says, wait, thank you. I just, I I know that you will walk in obedience to me. Thank you for your faithfulness. And caught up there was the ram in the thicket. And then they sacrifice the ram. It's this place where the Holy of Holies was. It's this place where the sacrificial altar was. And where God establishes a pattern of the sacrifices and the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Ultimately Jesus would be crucified and shed his blood on the same mount. The intentionality of God towards his people. Sorry, this wasn't. Not planned, (laughs) is overwhelming. The way that these stories intersect each other and the symbolic nature of these things. By the way, it's the same valley, it's the same mount that the prophet Zechariah tells us where Jesus will return. The flashes of lightning, the trumpet sounding, in fact, Zechariah 14, 4 says this. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, standing right here. Let's go back to that picture if we could. We can just leave that up for a little bit. I'm sorry. He will stand right on this mount, Mount of Olives, looking at Jerusalem. In fact, let's leave, Aiden. we can leave that picture up as I read this verse. Could you just, as you're looking at this picture, would you just in your, if your own imagination, just picture what this will try to begin to picture what this might look like. That his feet will stand right in this place, east of Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives, and it will be split in two from west east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. That this, this mount, Mount Moriah, will be split in two at the second coming of Jesus. That his second coming will not be like the first coming. That the triumphal entry... That we, which we now call it because we understand what Jesus accomplished. But his second coming had to be, be preceded by the first coming. And that second coming, everyone will know. It doesn't matter where you are on this planet. Everyone will know that he has come. Again, this is an important place. It's important to God and it's important to us. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says this, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many right there on that mount. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is coming back. But this morning, as we continue to talk about the triumphal entry, there's a couple more points. So Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, Mount uh, uh, the Mount of Olives, and the Kidron Valley, an, an extremely important place in the history of the Jews, but also for us as Christian Christians. He, he finds a cult. He sends the disciples, rather, to find a cult, which is the foal of a donkey. It's a fulfillment, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, um, and, and here's what's interesting about the colt. It's not a stallion. In fact, it's a young donkey. It's never been ridden. Now, I would imagine, I'm not an expert in these things, but I would imagine a donkey that's never been ridden is probably not an easy donkey to ride, right? And they're not very big. In fact, the, the depictions of Jesus riding that donkey, that foal, uh, you know, it's almost like his feet are touching the ground, Right. And and here's this this animal that, that was bred for to be to be burdened down with weight to carry people's stuff because well because they didn't want to carry it. Jesus now is seated upon this colt, this beast of burden, not on a stallion. Now I imagine people in the crowd must have thought, Well, at least he's riding. It's not a stallion, but at least he's riding. Well, why is that significant? Well, here's the tradition in Jerusalem is right at the beginning of this passage in Luke 19, it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in Jewish culture and in history, and the tradition is you always go up to a place of worship. The synagogue was always built in a high place in the community. You always went up to the house of the Lord, never down to it. And as people would come into Jerusalem, and you see this to, the, to, to this day, for those who are uh, Jew, the Jews and, and for the Christians that visit this mount, you never ride into Jerusalem. You always walk. You always walk. In fact, when I had the opportunity to visit, we came to Jerusalem, and the bus driver stopped the bus, our tour guide stopped the bus, and he said, from this point we walk we do not ride into jerusalem we always walk as a sign of honor and you would walk in fact the steps into the temple and into the synagogue were uh, they were not spaced evenly not by mistake but your brain it's an amazing thing your brain after you take two steps going up a flight of stairs your brain does the calculations needed for you to walk up the rest of the flight of stairs without thinking about the rise and the run of those steps it's pretty amazing You've experienced the walking up a flight of steps where there is one step that's not like the others. And what happens? You trip. Even if it's a half inch off, you trip. Why? Because your brain is anticipating something that's not there. And so the steps going up to the temple were mismatched. Why? Because you had to look down as you walk up the steps. And it forced people into a sign or into a place of humility and honor before the Lord, looking down. Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He rode into Jerusalem. Jesus was making a statement about who he was. In the simple act of riding on a, on a colt, he made a statement. You see, because you, the only person who wasn't allowed to walk into Jerusalem would have been God himself. And so Jesus sitting on a donkey, on a colt, riding into Jerusalem, what he is declaring very subtly is this. I'm God. I'm God. I am the one who has all of the power and all of the authority. My name is above every name. At this up to this point, Jesus any time anyone wanted to label him as the Messiah, Kind of kind of pushed them back a little bit. The disciples were, were aware, but there was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that he was publicizing. He, he didn't kind of, have a press release and say, just so everyone knows. It was very subtle. Jesus rides a colt. Why, why a colt? Not, why, a, why not a horse, rather? See, even though he rode into Jerusalem and made the declaration that he was God... Jesus still maintained a posture of honor before his father. If I'm going to ride into Jerusalem, I'm going to ride in on the most lowly, humble animal that I can find. Continuing to display that sign of surrender and honor before his father. He brings honor to his father in the way that he rides into the city. It's a pretty amazing picture. And if you ever have the chance to visit there, which, by the way, I'm hoping that next year, the end of next year, I'd love to be able to take a group from our church to Israel. If you're interested in that, um, stay tuned. There'll be more information. We'll probably be partnering with a couple other churches um, and taking a, a group to Israel. But it's an amazing thing to walk these streets where Jesus walked, where he rode into the city to see the things that he saw. But he honored his father as he did so. It says that they praised God for the miracles that they had seen. Jesus had raised Lazarus up from the dead. I've never seen anyone being brought back from the dead. I have friends who have, have seen it. Uh, I've talked to people who've prayed for others to be brought, brought back from the dead. In fact, our national leader of the Foursquare Church in Sri Lanka, Leslie Kegel, was at, after service, was standing at the front of uh, the platform in their church, and a lady came up to him and handed him a baby and uh and so he's holding the baby and the baby starts crying. And he says, you know, I did what every good pastor does when a baby starts crying. I gave it back to its mother. Here, take your baby back. But at this point, the baby, I mean, the mother is, is crying. She is weeping and kind of losing her mind a little bit. And so Leslie is going, what, what's going on? I don't understand. What's the circumstance? And someone told him, no, this baby had died and had been, died for a few day, had been dead for a few days. And she had brought the baby to church in the hopes that someone would pray and that this baby would be raised. Now, here's what I love about the story. He didn't even know. He didn't even know. And this baby came back to life. Jesus said that the things that we saw him do, that we read about, he says that even greater things would take place. And by the way, that's not just for Sri Lanka or Cambodia or Nigeria. God, God wants to move in power that way here. I've never seen someone raised to, back to life, but doesn't mean I'm not going to pray that way. It doesn't mean I'm not going to pray that way. But here's the thing, and here's the same tension that exists with the miraculous today as it did then. People missed the giver because they were so enthralled with the gift. They were so taken up by the fact that Lazarus was dead and now he's alive and they came to see Jesus kind of like, well, what else does he have, right? The original greatest showman except that he wasn't trying to promote himself. They wanted, well, let's see what happens. Let's see if maybe something spectacular and in the midst of wanting the miracle, they missed the worker of the miracles. See, Jesus is not a good luck charm. He's not a good luck charm. He's not someone we carry around in our pocket, and when things seem to be going sideways, we kind of pop him out and hope that something magical happens. He is the name above all names. And his desire before moving in our lives is that we would know him. In fact, the miraculous in the midst of Jesus' ministry was, was for one purpose only, was to glorify the Father and draw people into relationship. Now, of course, there's the benefit. If you were broken, if you were sick, if, if you found healing, well, yes, you're going to be blessed, but more than that, there's a restoration of relationship that takes place. Jesus isn't a good luck charm, but these people had lined the streets just maybe hoping that he would do something to wow them. The Pharisees were there and they... Yell at Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Who do you think you are? Now they would have understood as teachers of the law and ones who were schooled that Jesus riding into Jerusalem was a problem. It did not sit well with them. Who do you think you are? You tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus makes that statement. If they keep quiet, even the rocks will cry out. See, all of creation recognized the authority of the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, right, that we are without excuse because all of creation points back to God. Watch the video this week, That the the argument, the debate that exists between God and science. And for so many years, it's like, I believe in science, I don't believe in God. And And the the more technology we have and the deeper we're able to press into science, they're saying just that the evidence is overwhelming. That that science just points back to God. Well, yeah, Romans chapter 1 tells us that. Duh. (laughs) That all of creation declares the glory of God and that even here Jesus says, if my disciples don't cry out, the very rocks will cry out. We see this when Jesus is on the boat, the fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee, in the midst of the storm and the waves and the wind, and Jesus gets up and he speaks. He says, peace be still. And the disciples are amazed. Even the waves and the wind listen to him. Why? Because all of creation was submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ. We see it at the cross. As Jesus breathed his last, that there was a great earthquake. And lightning and thunder, and that the sky grew dark. Why? Because even creation recognizes the authority and the deity of Jesus Christ. And so, in that moment, he says, I could tell him to be quiet, but I'm going to tell you the rocks right around and the rocks on the street that, that are paving the way, they will cry out to me. You can see a turn in the tone of Jesus. He's a man on a mission. He has Calvary in his focus, and beyond that, you and me. I love the subtlety here, by the way, because I, I don't know. This is just the way I think, but Jesus basically saying is, the rocks are smarter than you, right? When me say the dumb as a rock, he's saying the rocks are more in tune with what is happening here right now. You're missing it. You're missing it passage ends with Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. I want to read this again. He says, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, if you, even you, you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Was it hidden because God hid it? Now it was hidden because their eyes were blinded, because they were more caught up with what they wanted than what they needed. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground. You and, your chil- and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another. Listen to this, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't recognize it and everything that Jesus prophesies here came to pass, which is why there is no longer a temple On that mount, there's a mosque. And that Jerusalem was torn down, and it was destroyed. Not too many years after this. See, but Jesus isn't weeping over a building. He's not weeping over the bricks and the stone and the mortar. He's weeping over a people who missed him. He came to them, and they they received him not. He had something so special and so powerful to give. But they did not recognize it. See for from the point of creation in the the moment when Adam and Eve. Walked in disobedience taking a bite of that fruit. The brokenness that entered the world because of sin. Beginning with and and really centered on the broken relationship between God and man, that we were no longer in a place where we could commune with God and have relationship with Him, to recognize His hand in our lives. All of that, from that point to this point where Jesus is writing in, God had been working His plan, saying, I am going to send a way of salvation, to the same mount where Abraham took his son to sacrifice him, on the same mount where the temple stood and, Oxes and, 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 and lambs and sheep and goats and all and doves were sacrificed and blood was shed so that there would be the forgiveness of sin, but it was an imperfect sacrifice. So it had to happen all over and over. God set, set in motion the plan that would send Jesus to be that sacrifice for us. Why? So that we could be restored. So that we could ultimately have what we need. But they missed it. They missed it. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted peace. They wanted comfort and prosperity. They wanted to be wowed. They wanted ice cream over broccoli. And the ice cream won. They couldn't get beyond what they wanted. What did Jesus bring? He brought a restored relationship with the Father that he made a way for us to walk in relationship with him, to come before God unlike people had been able to from the Garden of Eden until that time. He brought peace beyond our understanding. He said, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world leaves. Not the kind of peace you're looking for in this world. My peace. And it's a peace that is beyond understanding. He says, the Bible tells us that he brought wholeness. To every part of our lives. Jesus himself said that we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all things will be added. Do you know that God actually cares about your needs? He does care. But a good parent will always feed their kids broccoli before they give them ice cream. Right? That's good parenting one on one. God says, I want to bless you with the things that your heart desires, but I want to bless you first with the things that your heart needs and your life needs. So let me ask you a question this morning How are you coming to the Lord today? As you contemplate and meditate on his triumphal entry in this holy week that we're entering into remembering the things that Jesus did as he would go to the temple and cleanse the temple, as he would go to the upper room and have the last supper, as he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and and shed blood, drops of blood as, as sweat. As you contemplate Jesus and what he did for you, how are you approaching him today? As someone who's just gonna meet your needs, Or is the one who will touch every part of your life? I said that wrong, but I think you're tracking with me. The one who will just simply meet what you want him to touch? Or the one who will minister to every one of your needs? Let me ask it this way Are your wants winning out over your needs? Are your wants winning out over your needs? Well, I want Jesus to do this. We use this language, by the way, don't we? I want Jesus to do this. I want Jesus to, to, to do this in my life, to meet this, to take care of this, to work in this way. But, but it's so easy then to compartmentalize and say, but I just, I just want him to, to do this. But then this part of my life, I, I don't, wanna, don't really want to address that. I would rather he left that alone. Are your wants winning out over your needs? Where if you were honest, would you say that you need Jesus to touch your life? He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the conquering King. He just did it in a way that was different to what they expected. Can I suggest to you this morning, God wants to move in your, in your life today, this week. He wants to move in power. It might not be the way you expect though but are you willing to surrender yourself to him and say, Jesus, I recognize that you are God, that you are the word, that you are the truth, the life, you are the way. Say, Lord, would you touch the needs in my life? And we stand together as we close and invite the worship team to come. Where are you this morning? I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me today. I want to first give this opportunity. If you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, if you've never received him as your Lord and Savior and asked him to come in and change your life, to forgive your sin, I'd love to give you that opportunity today. If that's you, if he's been stirring in your heart and the Holy Spirit has been moving in your life this morning and you feel like that's me, I, I want to know Jesus that way. I would simply ask this with every head bowed and every eye closed just for, for, for your privacy. Would you just simply raise your hand and, and maybe look up at me, just make eye contact with me so I can agree with you this morning? Is anyone here this morning who would say, I need Jesus in my life? Never want to go past a Sunday and not give that opportunity. Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Jesus. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? (laughs) You're not alone. We all need Jesus. Anyone else? Raise your hand nice and high so I can see it. Thank you. And we pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me for sacrificing your life for me, for forgiving me of my sin. I invite you into my life to be my Lord, to be my Savior, to be my King. Jesus, would you work in my life in the places I need, not just the places I want. I surrender my life to you. Amen.